0: This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to wrap up my discussion about the covenants of God. There's so much that can be said, I certainly can't say it all here, but I want to go deep enough today that hopefully you'll have a good understanding of my perspective on this and how the scriptures talk about the old covenant, the new covenant, all the covenants of God, and how we as Christians, followers of the Messiah, relate to those covenants. If you haven't listened to the previous three talks, I encourage you to go do that now. What I'm going to say today assumes that you've already heard what I've said before. One thing I'll remind you of again is that a covenant is an agreement between two parties that involves no negotiation. A contract involves negotiation between parties, but a covenant does not involve negotiating the terms. When God gives us a covenant, when he speaks a covenant, we don't negotiate the terms of the covenant with him. And I spoke about the four covenants of God that are found in the Old Testament and come into effect in the Old Testament. And I spoke about the new covenant, which is mentioned in the Old Testament and comes into effect in the New Testament with the death of Jesus. So please go back and listen to all that. Before I continue this discussion, though, I do want to mention something that crossed my desk this week, and I want to share it with you. Hopefully it'll be an encouragement. Uh, As many of you who know me know that I'm getting older, we all get older, and as we get older, things begin to go wrong with our bodies. And I've had a few health issues come up over the last year. And I was sharing with a friend of mine, exchanging email messages. And he asked me about my health and I told him how things are going. And he wrote this, and it struck me as being very mature and very encouraging. He wrote, may God free you from the health problem you're facing or accomplish his good purpose through it. And I thought that was really good, very encouraging. Amen. May God free me from the health problems that I'm facing. But If not, then may he accomplish whatever his good purpose is through it. And just the other day at church, I had a conversation with a young man who's going through a very serious medical issue that is quite a surprise to him because he's a young fellow. But he was telling me how because of the problems, the physical problems that he's facing, he has so much more empathy for others. And he understands how others are feeling when he sees them going through something similar to what he's going through. And we talked about how his physical problem is temporary. Even if it lasts until the end of his life on earth, it is still a temporary problem. Followers of Jesus are going to receive new, perfect, eternal bodies. And any physical ailment that we have right now is only temporary. But the lessons that my friend has learned those are eternal. To have empathy and love and a deeper understanding for people that are suffering, that's an eternal and really good lesson to learn. So in that sense, it's worth having a temporary problem in order to learn and walk in and grow in eternal lessons. Also, I'll just mention, if you have any questions for me, you can write to me at the email address ancientpaths@cantrell.cc. I'd love to hear from you, and you may have questions about the things that I'm sharing on the covenants, so I'd love to answer your questions or go deeper into it if you have anything that you'd like to hear more about. And Today I want to start with a conversation that is familiar to us, and this is in John chapter 3. I think that most people have John 3.16 memorized, and if anybody here is interested in hearing what I have to say about John 3.16, I did an episode about that quite a while ago. Go back and listen to that because John 3.16 does not mean what you think it means. Pretty confidently I can say that. Some of you out there, of course, have heard what I shared about it. But John 3.16 is much deeper and richer than most people think. However, we're going to go back a little bit earlier in that conversation. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, comes to Jesus at night and has a conversation with him. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. And Jesus tells him, "Well, well, I'm telling you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of spirit. Jesus says a little bit more about water and spirit. And Nicodemus says in verse nine, well, how can this be? And Jesus says, This is what I want to focus on something that Jesus says to Nicodemus You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? That always stood out to me. And it was a little confusing to me until I did this study on the covenants. I sort of put myself in Nicodemus's spot. Here, Jesus seems to be saying something that's completely new You must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. And Jesus kind of chides him. says, you're Israel's teacher, you don't understand? Well, now I understand why it is that Jesus would say that to Nicodemus. The Jews were earnestly awaiting the Messiah, and the Jews were earnestly awaiting the great prophet who was to come. I've spoken about that before. But they weren't earnestly awaiting the new covenant. That had been spoken of in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. And they should have been because God had said specifically, I am going to bring a new covenant. And part of that covenant, God says, is that he would renew the human spirit and that God would put his spirit into human beings. That's the new covenant, a renewal and a cleansing of the human spirit and then the giving of the divine spirit into human flesh. And if Nicodemus had been expecting earnestly this new covenant to come into force, then as soon as Jesus said, you have to be born again, Nicodemus would have gone, oh, oh, well, maybe this then is that new spirit, that renaissance of the human spirit and the giving of the divine spirit. But he didn't make that connection. And Nicodemus had not been teaching people to expect this coming new covenant. But we see in the New Testament, many people are waiting for the Messiah. Many people are waiting for someone to come back and take David's throne and be the king of Israel again. And people are waiting for the great prophet to come, but they're not waiting for the new covenant. As a matter of fact, it has to be explained to them in Acts chapter 2. After the spirit is given, Peter has to explain to people, this is what Jeremiah was talking about. Here we are. This is the new covenant. This is what God said hundreds of years ago. This brings me to the heart of the reason that I began this study of covenants and why I am sharing these things with you now. These two questions, what is the relationship between the new covenant and the other four covenants? And which of these covenants apply to me today? And which of these covenants apply to you who are listening today? Now, there are strong disagreements on this topic among Christians. There are differences of opinion and even very deep divisions over this question. Which of these covenants apply to Christians today? Now, I will begin by saying one of the biggest differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant is that Gentiles are welcome. The other covenants were made with the nation of Israel, all three of the four covenants in the Old Testament. Were made with the nation of Israel, and certainly the old covenant was for Israelites. But now Gentiles are welcomed in to the new covenant. The new covenant is for all people who have faith, both Jew and Gentile. And we see this in the New Testament very soon after the new covenant came into force, after the death of Christ and the giving of the Spirit, Gentiles were very quickly receiving the Spirit and entering into the new covenant. But first, let's look at the Noah covenant. That covenant that was made with Noah, and it was God's promise not to destroy the earth by water again, and a promise by God that the seasons will continue as long as the earth exists. And we are all still under that covenant. All of creation is still under that covenant. The Noah covenant is applicable to all human beings and all of creation for their survival and the New Covenant is available to all human beings for their salvation. There's one place in the New Testament where Jesus seems to refer to the Noach Covenant, and that's in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. That is an expression of the Noach Covenant, and we are all still under that covenant. We share the benefits of the Noach Covenant. Well, now let's talk about the other three covenants, the ones that are made with Israel, and how do they apply to Christians? These three covenants are the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic. Covenants made with the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A covenant made with the children of Israel, that's the Mosaic, and the covenant that was made with the king of Israel, the Davidic. Do these three apply to those who are not Jews? and not physical descendants of Abraham. And as you can imagine, there are different answers to that question. Do these three apply to people who are not Jews? One view is that all three of these covenants are excluded from the new covenant. And the new covenant has replaced all three, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic and the Davidic. And this is a very common assumption among ordinary Christians. In the 4th century the scriptures were divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the early church had only the Hebrew scriptures and then later the Christian scriptures, but they were all together for the first 300 years of the life of the church. As a matter of fact in 2nd Peter chapter 3, Peter calls Paul's letters scriptures. The things that Paul is writing, Peter says, those are scripture. And the early church read both. There was not a hard line between the Hebrew writings, and the New Testament writings. However, after the Old Testament and the New Testament were divided, Christians began to assume, quite wrongly, that all of the Old Testament was finished with, and that we really need only the New Covenant, the New Testament. Many people have the impression that we are not subject to anything in the Old Testament, but that's not correct. There is an American Bible teacher who recently, within the last few years, said that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I'll quote him here. Some of you will know who I'm talking about, or you can Google him. But this is one of the things that he wrote. To church leaders, he wrote this. Would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? And then earlier in the book, he wrote, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. So those are things that he had said, asking church leaders to unhitch their teaching about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus from all things Old Covenant. Later, when he was challenged on his meaning for this, he wrote, the first century church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. And he said, Peter, James, Paul, elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. So that's what he said. And when we hear those words, it means different things to different people. But what did he say? At first, he said we should consider unhitching our teaching from the Old Covenant. And I tend to agree with him on that. But then he also says that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and from the Jewish scriptures. He even says that these early church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. Well, that's not true. They didn't unhitch from the worldview and the value system of the Old Testament writings at all. They did unhitch from the Old Covenant. And I think this shows in microcosm something that happens pretty commonly. There's a real confusion between the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law, and the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament writings. These Old Testament writings include the Old Covenant, but they are not the Old Covenant because we've seen there are other covenants mentioned. There's a lot of history, there's so much that's revealed about the character of God completely aside from the Mosaic law. And yet, people have this impression that we're not subject to anything in the Old Testament. There's also seems to be a renewal of the heresy of Marcionism. And this heresy of Marcionism is that the God of the Old Testament is seen as being cruel and harsh and a killer. And that is not the God of the New Testament, who is seen as a loving father, who is all love. However, the God of the Old Testament is the God and father of Jesus. If we don't read the Old Testament, then we're going to miss out on what God is like. Remember, John says in the beginning that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus is Jehovah of the Old Testament. John 3.16 won't allow us to say that the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament because it says very clearly, Jesus himself says, just as God loved the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 21, He loves the world now, as stated in John chapter 3. So we have to fight hard against this wrong understanding of the character of God and making a hard line between the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. The idea that all of the Old Testament does not apply to us, it's actually a dangerous position to hold, and that's not the right answer. Well, there is another answer. Which of these covenants apply to Christians? And the next answer is that all three of these covenants, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic, are all included in the new covenant. And this answer is common in churches, many churches, particularly in the Church of England and the Orthodox traditions. And those who believe this view often call it covenant theology. And the idea here is that there is really only one covenant called the covenant of grace which runs through the entire Bible. And it means that the new covenant gathers up into itself all of the previous covenants. I do want to say that this term, covenant of grace, is not a phrase that is found anywhere in the scriptures. And this idea that all three covenants are included into the new covenant tends to make people call Israel the church of God, And to call the church in the New Testament, the Israel of God, it's all one together. And one immediate result of this idea that all of these covenants are wrapped up in the new covenant is that it puts Christians under the law of Moses. And I was just talking with a friend and we were discussing these issues in application and really mostly it comes down to people not really thinking very deeply about these things. But there is this idea that people have that all of these covenants are wrapped up in the new covenant and that Christians are under the Mosaic law. And one practical implication is the baptizing of babies. And the idea that baptizing babies under the new covenant is the same as circumcision in the old covenant. In other words, that people inherit their religion. That a person, a baby is born into a covenant, born into a specific relationship with God. They're born into the new covenant, and therefore you baptize a baby just as the Jews would give the mark to their babies. Now, the Orthodox Church takes this view, of course, that people are born into faith. They're born into a people of God and not born into a personal relationship with God. And this is a very common way of thinking in many evangelical churches as well. That people are born into faith, they don't choose to submit themselves to this new covenant. This also lies behind this idea of churches having priests and altars and vestments and incense, because Israel's worship had all these things, and so should we. If we're a part of this Mosaic covenant, then we take on all of these other activities of the church. But this is really confusing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. At our church in the United States, which is a Methodist church, there was a lady who came to the church leadership, and she was quite upset that after the offering had been taken, the ushers took the offering and just went out of the room and took it back where it was going to be stored. And she was very upset because she said that offerings of the church must be placed on the altar in order to be sanctified. Now, here she is in an evangelical church in the United States in the 21st century, And she is using terms like altar and sanctification. And her idea was that when somebody makes an offering, it has to be placed on the altar in the church in order to be blessed by God. Well, needless to say, the Methodist Church doesn't have an altar. An altar is a place where blood sacrifice was done. And that was only in Jerusalem, that was nowhere else. But there's a mixing and a confusion of these old covenant phrases and ideas. That we should have priests and altars and vestments and incense, and we need to place things on the altar in order for them to be sanctified. This view that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, applies to Christians also often leads to a belief that religion should be established, which is a state church. And this is because in the Mosaic Covenant, the church and the state were one. And in Europe, now, most of the churches are state churches. And even before that, Europe was called Christendom. And at birth, you became a member of Christendom. You became a member of the church and the state. And yet, this position is not consistent, because people will tend to apply the Ten Commandments to Christians, but not the other 603 laws of the Mosaic Law. However, the Mosaic law doesn't give that freedom. Matter of fact, God said you must obey 100% of these laws or you fall under my curse. It must be all or nothing because that's the Mosaic law. There are many laws in the Mosaic law that we don't follow now. For instance, one of the laws is if your house gets dry rot, you have to burn it down or you shouldn't wear clothing that's of mixed fabric. So there's a lack of consistency. This idea that we would apply the Ten Commandments to Christians, but not the other 603 laws that are in the Mosaic Law. And to not keep all that law means that a person is to be cursed from God, as we've seen in my previous talks. I'll tell a story. I hesitate to tell it. But I think I probably ought to, (laughs) uh, because it kind of shocked me when I heard it. And as I've mentioned before, I'm getting a lot of what I'm sharing from a Bible teacher named David Pawson. And when he took a church in England, he came to this old church building, very old building, and behind the pulpit where he was speaking, on the wall behind him, painted onto the wall were the Ten Commandments. And he said that one of the first things that he did was he painted over the Ten Commandments on that wall because the Ten Commandments have no place in a new covenant church. When he said that, it really shocked me because I've just always assumed that Well, sure, you have the Ten Commandments in the church. Just the other day, my father and I were driving through the countryside, looking at historic sites, and we were visiting old churches out in the country. And I saw in a graveyard a very nice gravestone. It was in much better condition than all of the rest of the gravestones in this ancient graveyard. As we got closer, I noticed that it was the Ten Commandments written in stone sitting out in front of that church. And I thought, wow, that's just exactly what David Pawson was talking about. Here are the Ten Commandments literally written in stone in front of a New Covenant fellowship. And God says that the New Covenant is not laws written on stone. It is his word written on hearts of flesh inside his people by his spirit. So I encourage you to think about that. Do the Ten Commandments have a place in the New Covenant Church? Well, we're going to talk about that a bit more here, and you'll see my reasonings why I think that they do not. And that's actually very much what we see in the Scriptures. Well, there's a third answer to this question which of these covenants applied to Christians, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic? And this answer is that the Mosaic is excluded, while the other two, the Abrahamic and the Davidic, are still in force and this is my understanding of the scripture. One covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law, was temporary, and it is now obsolete. And this Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the law, does not apply to us. So, am I saying that the Ten Commandments do not apply to Christians? Yes, that's what I'm saying. However, I will add, if the new covenant confirms any of those commandments, then they are for Christians. If Jesus confirms them, then they are for us. And the New Testament does not confirm all 10 of the 10 commandments. The New Testament scripture repeats some of those old laws, nine out of the 10, but not all are endorsed. But nine of the 10 commandments are mentioned in the New Testament. However, the fourth commandment is not mentioned. As a matter of fact, It is spoken about a few times in Romans chapter 14 and Colossians chapter 2, and that is the law of the Sabbath. The Sabbath law does not apply to us. Under the new covenant, we can consider one day as special or consider every day as being the same. We're free. The seventh day Adventists worship on the Sabbath, but we're free not to or to. The scriptures are very clear about that. And I want to remind you that the Sabbath is from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So if you think that we need to keep the fourth commandment, well then that means don't do any work from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. So would you agree then that we should have a six-day work week? Have our church meetings on Saturday and go to work Sunday morning? Because Sunday is not the Sabbath. It's the first day of the week. That's a work day. And actually, this is one of the pieces of evidence that clearly show us that the early church was sure that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, because all of those early believers were Jewish, and they all switched from worshiping on the Sabbath to worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday, resurrection day. The day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead became the worship day of the early church, Well, that meant that all of these believers, followers of Jesus, were worshiping on a work day, and many of them were slaves, which would mean they had to be up before the household and go to bed after the household. They were preparing meals or getting things ready. These early believers had to get up quite early to have fellowship. It was a work day. And anyone today who thinks that we're under the law of the Sabbath should really think deeply about it. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Should we be working six days and take one day off? The New Testament scriptures, as I mentioned in Romans 14 and Colossians 2, say very clearly that we're just not under that particular law. But the other nine are all reaffirmed and confirmed and restated in the New Testament writings. As a matter of fact, some of the Old Covenant laws are defined in more strict terms under the New Covenant. And you can see this in the Sermon on the Mount or Jesus equates murder with hatred. The physical act of killing a person becomes as bad as hating that person, and adultery is equated with lustful looks. As a matter of fact, there are more imperative commands under the new covenant than under the Mosaic law. Remember, there are 613 commandments in the Mosaic law, And yet, when we read the New Testament, there are over 1,100 imperative commands. I'll give you just a few here. You could think of many, I'm sure. Remember, the imperative form is a commandment. And Jesus says, fear not. That's not good advice. That's a commandment. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. The Bible says, resist the devil. The New Testament scriptures say, pray without ceasing. These are imperative commands that are under the new covenant. We are not under the law of Moses, but that does not mean that we're under no law at all. The new covenant law can be called the law of liberty, because the new covenant offers us both the desire and the power to be obedient. Well, this brings us to another question, one that uh, I think I may also step on a few toes here, and it's the question of tithing. And I've heard this preached many times in churches, and they'll quote Malachi. Very familiar, but I'll go ahead and read it here just so that we have it in front of us. God says, will you rob God, yet you rob me, but you will ask, how do we rob you? And this is what God says, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I've heard this preached on quite often, that we are under this law of tithing. And it's this challenge that we need to bring 10% to the church and test God in it. But if you look earlier God says, you're cursed if you don't. Earlier in the scriptures, we read that God curses to the third and fourth generation, those who do not follow his law. And so today, some teachers say that we must tithe in order to receive God's blessings. They'll say, do you want to be blessed by God? Then tithe. And yet they don't say, do you want to be cursed? Even your children and your grandchildren? Then don't tithe. But that's what the Bible says. And That is a wicked teaching if you were to say that to somebody in a church. If you don't give 10% right now, then your children and your grandchildren are cursed. Now, I'll say that the law on tithing, though it's a good idea, does not apply to the new covenant. The new covenant, we see that God loves a cheerful giver. We are called to give freely because everything that we have belongs to the Lord, not just 10%. Now, I've heard it said that tithing is a good floor but it's not a good roof. So, well, that's one way to think about it, but really we're not under any obligation to give 10%. As a matter of fact, we should give all because everything belongs to God. Well, now I come to a question that has been very interesting to me, and this is a question, what was the biggest controversy in the New Testament? And it is exactly what we're talking about. And we see it in Acts chapter 15. Do Gentiles need to become Jews? In order to become Christians, do Gentiles need to come under the Mosaic Law in order to follow the Messiah? And in Acts chapter 15, we see the answer to this question no, Gentiles do not need to come under the Mosaic Law in order to be followers of Jesus. And in Galatians, it says, if we submit ourselves to circumcision, then we're binding ourselves to the whole of the law of Moses. Much of the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, these were all written to address this issue. Do Gentiles need to come under the Mosaic Law in order to follow the Messiah? Are we under the Mosaic Law? And the answer is no. Clearly, it is no. The Mosaic Law was given to teach, it was temporary in Galatians chapter 3. It says the law was like a governess to bring children up to maturity, or it's like a schoolmaster. In the King James, it's called a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In the New American Standard, it's called a tutor. Other translations say that the law became a guardian to lead us to Christ. The law was given to prepare Israel for Jesus, it was pointing the way towards Christ. That's why the law was given. The Mosaic law revealed to people their sinfulness and their need for a savior. I've heard it said that the Mosaic law shows how straight God is, and then we see how crooked we are in comparison. Up until the giving of the Mosaic law, there was not an understanding of this straight-edged righteousness of God, his demand for perfection and keeping the law perfectly And that's what the Mosaic law does. It reveals to us how far short we fall of the righteousness of God and how much we need to have a savior. We just can't do it on our own. In the New Testament, often it talks about sinners in the gospels, how Jesus was hanging around with sinners. And now remember all of these quote sinners were Jews and Jesus is with these sinners. But what does that word mean really? Actually, the people who were called, quote, sinners in the gospels were Jews who had just given up trying to keep the law. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They weren't tithing. They were getting drunk. They were doing all kinds of things. They were people who had just realized we can't do it by ourselves. And they had given up trying to keep God's perfect law. Boy, those are the people that Jesus came to, the ones who realized that they can't do it on their own and they need help. Christ himself said that he did not come to abolish the Mosaic law, but to fulfill it, to complete it, to wrap it up and finish it up. Some people get confused by thinking that keeping the law saved people in the Old Testament, but the Bible is very clear that salvation has always been by faith alone. The promise of salvation by faith that God had made to Abraham as part of the Abrahamic covenant still remains in effect. In Galatians chapter three, we read, I'll quote here, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say into his seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, Paul says, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promises. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. This promise that God counts our faith, he reckons it as righteousness. The sacrificial system of the Mosaic covenant did not really take away sins. We can read that in Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read that here too. Hebrews 10. The Law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, the law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see that the Mosaic law did not take away sin. It covered sin and it made atonement, but the sins continued and the the sacrifices were imperfect. The law foreshadowed the bearing of sin by Christ, who was the perfect high priest and was also the perfect sacrifice. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, the Mosaic covenant in and of itself, with all its detailed laws, could not save people. It was not that there was any problem with the law itself, for the law is perfect and it was given by a holy God. But the law had no power to give people new life, and the people were not able to obey the law perfectly. This is so important. God gave that law to show his righteousness and his holiness and to lead us to our understanding that we really need a savior. Now, we are free from the law of Moses, but we are not free from the law of Christ. And Christ endorsed some of the Mosaic laws, but not all of them. And Peter learned this because, remember, he was told in a dream in Acts chapter 10 to eat unclean meat. He was told what God calls clean that no one should call it unclean Well, God was preparing Peter to go and preach the new covenant to a Gentile, to go and eat with him, which he would never have done under the Mosaic law. Peter would never have done that. But God was preparing him and saying, go, speak to these Gentiles. And God gave that same spirit to those Gentiles. Now, I've mentioned earlier Acts chapter 15, there was a council in Jerusalem that took up this question. Peter and Paul argued that Gentiles can come into the New Covenant without coming under the Mosaic Law, but that battle is still going on, and we need to be set free from legalism, putting ourselves under that Mosaic Law, and we need to learn to follow that spirit that is within us. Now, as I've said previously, the Mosaic Covenant is also referred to as the Old Covenant. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 8. And... The Mosaic covenant is replaced by the new covenant in Christ. And we see that in Luke chapter 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Oh, my goodness, all through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 12. The new covenant in Christ is far better than the Mosaic covenant that it replaces because it fulfills the promises made by God in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. The new covenant is so much better than the Mosaic law because it fulfills those promises of God. Now I mentioned this last time and I'll talk about it again here quickly because I think it's real important in our understanding of how the giving of the law and the new covenant relate to one another. And this is a little quote by Alfred Edersheim. And he wrote a book back in the 1800s, I believe, called The Temple, Its Ministry and Services. And let me read what he said. According to unanimous Jewish tradition, which was universally received at the time of Christ, the day of Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which the Feast of Weeks was intended to commemorate. Now, some of you probably have heard of the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost Day, means the 50th day, and it's the Greek name for the Feast of Weeks, a prominent feast in the calendar of ancient Israel celebrating the giving of the law at Sinai. This feast is still celebrated in Judaism, and it's one of the three great pilgrim feasts that God told the Jewish people to celebrate, and this occurs 50 days after the Feast of the Passover. If you remember the story, the Jews were saved from death, and they left Egypt the next day, and 50 days later, the law was given at Sinai. Now, in the New Covenant, there's a Passover, and Jesus gives his life to save people from death, and 50 days later, the Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit was given to people on the very day when, centuries earlier, the law had been given through Moses. But when this new covenant Pentecost came, the Spirit was given without any commandments. Think about that. When God gave the Spirit on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were no commandments. He wrote his law on their hearts and 3,000 people were liberated. But on the first Pentecost, when the law was given in Mount Sinai, as I've said, 3,000 people died because of their disobedience. Under the law, 3,000 died, and under the Spirit, 3,000 lived. Well, this means that on the same day that Jews were celebrating God's giving of his Torah, his law, the law that was written on tablets of stone, the Holy Spirit came and wrote his law on people's hearts. 50 days after sacrificing the Passover lamb, the Israelites received a covenant from God, And 50 days after the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb, believers received a new covenant from God. The letter to the Hebrews makes it very clear that the Mosaic covenant is now obsolete. And I'm quoting scriptures there. In Hebrews chapter 8, after quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, the writer of Hebrews says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. The work of the Mosaic Law is done, and we're free from it. It's obsolete. I would liken this to having a bill that you receive for some services. Let's say you have to pay the water bill, and it's for, let's say it's for a lot of money. As a matter of fact, you've left the water running for several months, and you just can't possibly pay that bill. But it's still due. And still has to be paid. And then let's say a friend of yours pays the bill for you and gives you a gift of the paying of this bill, this obligation. Well, the bill doesn't disappear. It's not as if it never happened, but the bill is no longer in force. It's obsolete, it's passed away, it's aging, but it's still there. The history of it is there. The demand for payment was there, and the payment was made. And this is the way it is with the old covenant. Jesus made that payment. And so that old covenant is no longer in force. We still need to understand that it's there. It exists, but it was paid. It's done. It has no power. There's no call on us from this old covenant law. Now, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants are both a part of our inheritance. The Bible says that by faith, we are now sons of Abraham. And we find that in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. And the son of David is our eternal king. So we are still under the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. They are a part of our inheritance. Now I have a story that illustrates the giving of the new covenant pretty well. And I'm going to change the names in the story because I think probably a couple of these participants are listening to me right now. (laughs) But I'll change the names to Paul and David. And a friend of mine, the son of a friend of mine, many years ago when he was about 10 years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. And his name was Paul. And for those of you who don't know, leukemia is a cancer of the blood. And Paul was a little boy and he got this cancer in his blood. And the only way for him to survive is to find a donor who would give him bone marrow. Because the bone marrow, what's inside your bones, is what creates the blood. And if you have a cancer of the blood, you can't just take all the blood out of a body and put good blood in because the bone will continue to generate cancerous, diseased blood cells. So the only way that Paul was going to be able to be cured was to find a donor who would give him new bone marrow. And of course, that means killing your bone marrow and then having a transplant from a donor who is a perfect match. And it turned out that Paul's little brother, David, was a perfect match. And they decided to make this transplant from David to Paul of the bone marrow. Well, this is a costly and a very painful process because all of Paul's marrow had to be killed so that David's healthy bone marrow could be put into Paul. And they did that. Paul is alive today. He's a young man, happily married. David, his little brother, is also happily married. They're doing great. And Paul is now alive because his blood no longer flows in his veins. It's his brother's blood that flows through his veins. You see that? That diseased root of life in Paul's life had to be killed, and healthy, good cells had to be put in. And now Paul lives because it's not his blood anymore, it's his brother's healthy blood that flows through his veins. And this is almost a perfect analogy of the new covenant. Our sin nature has to be killed and the life of God has to be put in us, invigorate us. And this is an issue that I come up with pretty often. And I say pretty often because it comes up quite a bit that people that I'm talking to are trying to be healed of some past sin And I often think, well, that doesn't need to be healed. It just needs to be killed. You just need to kill that stuff, not try to make it better. Just kill it and let God's life flow in his perfect life. Jeremiah and Ezekiel said that a new spirit is coming and God is going to put his spirit in us. The life of God that was outside of us has now in the new covenant come inside of human beings. Paul says it. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The new covenant does something that the Mosaic law can never do. And what is that? The new covenant can make a bad man good. And that is not something the Mosaic law ever claimed to do. The whole purpose of researching about the covenants is to bring us into that living relationship with God. And the apostle John actually says so in John chapter 20. He said that he wrote things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, that's one of the reasons I'm recording this and saying it to you now. I pray that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that by believing it, you may have life. I've spoken about it before. Communion is the image, the perfect image of this. It's the taking in of the life of Jesus. And this is why it was such a shock to Jews who had been told never, ever to drink blood. And now they're being told by Jesus to drink his blood, the blood of the new covenant. Whoa, that is new. Communion is not just a religious observance. It is deeper and it's real. The blood of Jesus starts flowing in our veins just as the wine goes into the stomach. And is absorbed by the body, becoming us, so also the Spirit of God, which is offered freely, comes inside of us and becomes our Spirit, and then we want to please God. Let's compare and contrast here for a second. The Mosaic covenant says, Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. Becoming righteous in order to approach God, that is, obedience precedes blessing. In the new covenant, it says, you will be blessed and then you will become obedient. We come to God in order to receive righteousness. We don't try to be better in order to approach God. Under the new covenant, we come to God in order to receive righteousness. God's spirit in us gives us the desire to do his will. And this is why the old covenant is obsolete the law was given as a schoolmaster to show that we cannot keep God's perfect law without his help. The law is good. It reveals God's holiness. Jesus came to fulfill that law. And again, you can read all about this in Galatians and Hebrews. The old sacrificial system never removed sin. It covered it. But there was always a need to return to sacrifice. Well, Jesus finished that work. One sacrifice For all sin. And I believe that's why he said on the cross, It is finished. He did that work. I believe that Jesus went through hell on the cross because that's when God left him. God the Father was gone, and that is hell. And that moment is very much like the killing of the bad blood in Peter, the story I just told. It is painful and it's terrible. And Jesus went through that for us. Jesus not only tasted death, he drank of death so that you and I will not taste death. Several years ago, and I think I may have told this story before here, I was driving through Europe with some interns with our ministry, and we stopped at Auschwitz in Birkenau, which is in southern Poland. And these were camps where many, many Jews were killed by the Nazis. As a matter of fact, when we were standing there at Birkenau, It was a place where hundreds of thousands of people were killed, often within a half an hour of their arrival off a train. And I was standing there with our interns, and one of them, a young lady, said to me very somberly, very soberly, she said, Jesus paid for this. And I had never really thought about it that way. Jesus paid for the sin of Birkenau, where hundreds of thousands of people were murdered. Jesus paid for the sins of the Nazis. He loved them enough to pay for that sin. And that's the price that Jesus paid to institute the new covenant. Not only the sins of the Nazis, all the sins of all the people in all the world through all time. He took that on himself to institute in this new covenant. We do not deserve what God has done. And this was a real breakthrough for Martin Luther when he realized it from Romans chapter 8. It says there, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Well, let's stop there. Paul is saying there is a righteousness that comes from God, but it has nothing to do with the Mosaic law. And now we know it, we understand it, because it's the coming of the new covenant. But the law, the Mosaic law, and the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were testifying about this righteousness. Continuing on, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And God did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who live by faith in Jesus. God gives this gift freely. We can never earn God's righteousness. It is not wages. It's not something that we work for and God pays us his righteousness or his forgiveness. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, we get what we deserve. We earn death. But the gift of God is eternal life. This is so important. Under the Mosaic law, you had to do things. God was saying, you must be right in order to receive my blessings. And that taught human beings, it teaches us, well, we, we can't do that on our own. And now in Christ, you're saying, okay, I will credit your faith to you as righteousness, and I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to move in you both to want to do my will and to actually put it into practice. In Galatians chapter 3, we read, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, I would like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God could justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance through Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. There's a statement of the Abrahamic covenant. Continuing on with what Paul said, So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because, the Bible says, the righteous will live by faith. I really want you to understand this. The Mosaic law was temporary. It has done its work. It has shown us the need for a Savior. But we're not justified by keeping the Ten Commandments. We are justified by faith in Jesus. And when we have faith in Jesus, then we come under the new covenant, which is the promise of the renewing of our spirit and the giving of his Holy Spirit into us. So what is our response then? What do we do? The Bible is quite clear. We abide in him. We obey him. We show our love for him by submitting ourselves to him. Now, the new covenant is more difficult for humans because we have to give everyone freedom to abide in Christ and let Christ be their head. The new covenant is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, and then for the nation of Israel. And we Gentile believers are grafted into that vine. Abraham traveled three days to offer up Isaac on the Mount of Moriah. And Abraham was fully confident that Isaac would be raised from the dead because God had promised that his family line would be blessed. And by the way, this is the beginnings of the idea of resurrection in the Bible. Abraham, when he's on Mount Moriah, sees a ram. This is a male lamb, a year old, with its head caught in the thorns. Did you know that Mount Moriah is Golgotha? Abraham traveled three days to offer up Isaac, and he went up on where Jesus himself was sacrificed. The same place that Abraham offered up the sacrifice of a ram with its head in thorns, this is the place that the Lamb of God was sacrificed. So, in closing, I want to say something that Paul said in Colossians. He said his purpose in writing the letter was so that the believers there would be encouraged in heart and united in love. And that's my goal, that you would be encouraged in heart, that you listeners would all be united in love, that we would together abide in Christ, letting his spirit link us together, that we will allow the Lord, the head, to set us together as living stones with the mortar that binds us together as love. And may we believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing that, we may have life in his name. Well, my friends, this concludes my talk about the Mosaic Law and the New Covenant, how the covenants apply to us. It may have raised some questions in your minds. Please feel free to check with me, ask me any questions you have. Please read the scriptures and verify that what I'm saying to you is true. Don't let any other teacher misguide you on this because it is so very important. The covenants are how God reveals to us how he is going to relate to us, how he wants us to relate to him. We are under a new covenant. We are not under the Mosaic law. God does not want to relate to us through laws that are written on stone. He intends, he purposes to relate to us by writing His Word, His Spirit, on our hearts of flesh. Remember, one of the promises is that He will take out a heart of stone and He'll put in a heart of flesh. He'll renew our spirit and He will give us His divine spirit so that we may abide in Him, that through faith we may share in His righteousness and over time grow and be sanctified and become more and more and more like Jesus in every way. It's a work that God is doing. It is nothing that you can do from your own energy. All the Lord asks of you is that you have faith. Well, friends, until the next time, I pray that God will work these lessons deep into your spirit. And I pray that you will continue to understand both his will and his ways, because as we walk in his ways, We always find peace for our souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.